There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Get down with you. Now, the prank of the year. And savage it is, too. On closer inspection, a delight becomes a fright for the phone company. I'm really disappointed about the whole thing. Now look at this. Look carefully. T-E-L-E-C-O-M, telecom, and S-U-X, sucks. Oh, yes. Ain't nothing to work out. Ain't nothing to know. Ain't no way you can grow unless you let go. Kia ora, and welcome back to Prank of the Year. Barring any massive new revelations that might come out in the future, this is where our investigation ends. If you're listening to this episode on its release day, then please join me in celebrating the 30th anniversary of our telecom Christmas card incident. It's been exactly three decades since I sat in front of the TV in my childhood home and watched Paul Holmes chortle about the card with the telecom sucks message an event that became the catalyst for this whole weird adventure. When I was a kid, around the same time that I was watching that Paul Holmes episode, I wanted to be a detective. I knew from cartoons that detectives, they pulled magnifying glasses out of their trench coat pockets, and they followed footprints on the dirty floor to find their answers. I used to make up mysteries to solve with my little brother. 30 years later, it seems, I'm still playing detective. Before we get into the episode proper, I just want to acknowledge everyone that I somehow convinced to join me on this odyssey. Paul Holmes might have regarded the story as a quirky piece of news filler in 1993, but I've tried to treat this whole investigation seriously, for the most part, and I deeply appreciate the time, the insights, and the recollections of everyone that I've spoken to. I'm also grateful for everyone who has listened to this series, and for those who have reached out to us. Thank you all. Today's episode is going to be a bumper edition. After five years of investigation, dozens of interviews, hundreds of pages of historic records and countless hours of production, it's all coming down to this. Like I said in our previous episode, I believe that my co-producer Luke and I are closer than anyone has ever been, and likely ever will be, to knowing what happened with the telecom card. Let's start with a quick recap. 
because as you might recall from episode one, memory isn't always as reliable as we'd like it to be. After I'd revisited the Holmes broadcast, I was shocked to learn that my initial assumption, that an artist had defaced his own work to stick it to telecom, that wasn't accurate. And a closer look at telecom's history told me that there was no shortage of people who thought they might have sucked in the early 90s. We unpacked the Otago Daily Times newspaper article at exhaustive length, and crucially, we found out as much as we could about the Telecom Art Awards exhibition, hosted at the Otago Art Society Gallery. We also dug into the scanning and printing processes that would have been used to turn a painting into a greeting card in the early 90s. Both of these are super important, because they present opportunities for tampering. Last week's episode featured a bunch of experts who filled us in on the topics of marketing, art crime, protest objects, and art-based activism. These bonus conversations gave us a chance to better understand what motivates this sort of statement. And now that we're up to speed, let's pick up on the cliffhanger that we left you with in episode four. As you'll recall, Luke and I came to the realisation that we needed the perspective of one person in particular. Someone with a direct link to this case. Mr. Gray Dixon, the artist who was crowned one of the Otago region's Art Awards finalists and had his work turned into a telecom Christmas card. Gray, or Graham, was living in Dunedin in 1993, and he still lives in the southern part of New Zealand's South Island. It took us a very long time to finally track him down and open up a line of communication. Graham is a man who values his privacy. As you'll hear, he has his reasons for this and I respect them. While we'd love to be able to drop in a crisp, clear audio interview with the man himself, Graham asked that we keep our communications to email. It was fundamentally important to me that we embark on this whole journey only with his blessing. And so over the past 12 months, that's exactly what we've done. With the information he shared with us, we've been able to get a much better understanding of what went down in December 1993. Graham has consistently denied sabotaging his own artwork, but he definitely has feelings about how Telecom conducted itself as a company back in the 90s. He was also able to clear up some, but not all, of the gaps in our knowledge. What you're about to hear are Graham's words, but we've asked an actor to read them. I'm not sure what else I can add to the story that you haven't already gleaned from the TV items and newspapers. However, should you have any questions for me, I'll do my best to answer them for you. As to the monopoly that Telecom was then and its culture, I've attached a bio of Rod Dean, the CEO at the time, who was pulling an enormous salary whilst cutting staff and services in the name of profit. One example of this myopic focus was the axing of the free phone to Santa for kids, and that really upset a lot of the public. Put a pin in that free phone to Santa thing. We're going to come back to it soon. Graham seemed puzzled that anyone would have any further questions about his painting, and he probably didn't expect that I had dozens of them. He was open to answering some, though, so I whittled my long list of questions down to a measly... 13. Here's what he said. As mentioned previously, there's not really much I can add to the story you already have, apart from the following. I don't know who the printers were, but there was a mess up when the painting went missing for over a week after it was sent to Wellington rather than Auckland. I never saw the painting from the evening where we all gathered in the gallery for the announcement until it was sent back to me following printing. I received the painting back from Telecom after they had finished with it. They also enclosed several of the Christmas cards for my use. 
I sent these cards out to friends and family. One of these friends saw the hidden message and told me. I then informed Telecom and was instructed by them to keep it all quiet. Maybe a couple of days later, Kim Hill announced to the world on her 9 to noon show and I ended up in the media circus. Gray concluded this email with an interesting sign-off too. I do wish you well with your project and that Nancy will be, as she promised in The Secret of the Old Clock, to be as careful as a pussycat on a slippery roof. Kind regards, Graham. For those of you not well versed on 20th century children's literature, Gray is referring here to Nancy Drew, the girl detective who is often advised to tread lightly as she tries to solve a mystery. Don't worry, Nancy, I'd think up something. Well, you better start thinking. They're right behind us. What? I was a little bit puzzled by this vaguely ominous sign-off, and it wasn't until several months later that I understood why Gray might have advised caution. Here's a story from another of Gray's emails. Immediately after the media exposure, I started to receive several abusive and or threatening anonymous phone calls. There was no caller ID back then. Some of which were possibly from telecom supporters, whilst others, from what I perceived, were angry supporters of the arts or maybe artists who relied on corporate money for their existence. It was quite harrowing at the time. Then, several weeks later, I received a surprise phone call from a man who said he was telecom security and he wanted to visit me to talk about the painting but didn't have my address. I was a little suspicious, so I suggested I'd meet him at a specific place in my neighbourhood. I waited on the footpath where arranged, and soon after, a white Holden Commodore pulled up with two men sitting in the front. I was asked to hop in the back seat, which I did. They were both the size and shape of a family refrigerator and looked as though they'd just come straight off the set of a 60s American TV cop show. I soon lost that thought though when they began to use their physical presence to effect and without mincing words demanded I give them the painting immediately. I sat dumbstruck at first which may have signaled to them that the intimidation was failing because they then said that unless I gave it to them there and then I would be in court before my feet had touched the ground. Somewhat confused and hoping to stall them until I could confirm that they were who they said they were, I told them it wasn't in my possession anymore as I'd given it away. They looked at each other, mumbling something, and then the guy in the passenger seat shrugged his square shoulders back into line and started to open his door. I immediately jumped out of the car and walked off at a good pace down the street. I turned into a neighbor's gate and looked back through their hedge. The passenger hadn't followed me and they were now both sitting in the car talking. I stayed hidden behind the hedge until they drove off. I hope that helps in a portrayal of some of the fallout that followed me thereafter and where I sit with it. This is wild. What the hell was going on here? Who were these goons? Were they actually on Telecom's payroll? I just can't reconcile the story. I have no earthly idea what to make of it. So let's sit with it for a minute, and pick up again after the break. This is getting too dangerous for you. We're going home and you're going to keep out of the whole affair while you're in one piece. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Forty-eight hours before I sat down to record this episode, an email from Gray landed in our inbox, and the content of it made us frantically rewrite most of what you're about to hear. Graham had been doing some spring cleaning that very day. And while rifling through a, quote, bulging file cabinet, he came across a manila envelope marked Telecom. Inside this folder was correspondence from late 1993 between himself, Telecom's head office in Wellington, and Telecom Directories, the Auckland-based subsidiary that produced phone books. He sent us pictures of all these letters, faxes, and handwritten notes, and they weave quite a story. I will say right now, that we didn't have a definitive answer to this entire mystery before we got Graham's cache of documents, and we don't have one afterwards either. Later in the episode, you'll hear Luke and I go through all of the theories about what might have happened. But first, we need to lay some groundwork, and that involves building a timeline. I believe that this sequence of events is the most comprehensive account of the telecom card incident that exists. As always, if anyone listening to this has any knowledge that can help us fill any gaps, would love to hear it. I've drawn from primary sources, such as newspaper and other media coverage, remembered accounts of people that we've heard from during previous episodes, and information that Gray Dixon has clarified with us by email, including the most recent documents that he's unearthed. So let's jump in. I'll try not to make this too dense. In February 1993, Telecom announced that it had made a record $121 million profit the previous quarter. At the same time, they also announced plans for a significant restructure that would see over 5,200 staff redundancies within the next four years. In the following months, Gray Dixon takes up painting as a hobby, and there's a good chance that the defaced painting was one of the first paintings he ever produced. A Radio New Zealand bulletin from early August 1993 confirms that Telecom was ordered to remove barriers on their infrastructure, making it easier for clear communications customers to have cheaper phone calls. This would have been done begrudgingly, I'd imagine. Remember the Santa line thing that I asked you to put a pin in? Turns out this was yet another thing that raised the public's ire towards telecom. We know from a 3 News clip, the company announced that it was discontinuing its popular service, which saw thousands of Kiwi kids ring a toll-free number and have a chat with the big man up at the North Pole. Telecom withdrew their 0800 Santa line a few weeks ago and said they'd give the thousands of dollars saved to Women's Refuge and the Salvation Army instead. After an outcry from kiddies and parents, Santa line is back and some money still goes to charity. One of the documents that Grace sent us was a copy of the Art Awards entry form from 1993. 
This was similar to the 1991 version from the Hocken Library that we'd seen, but clarified a lot of the dates that we'd previously had question marks around. For example, we now know that submissions for the 93 competition had to be in before Tuesday the 28th of September. Graham would have submitted his painting sometime in the days or weeks prior to this date. At the end of that week, on Friday the 1st of October, Graham has sent a letter from Telecom Directories. The letter, signed by a communications executive, congratulates him on being selected as one of the 20 Otago finalists, out of the total 208 submissions. He is also invited to the awards ceremony, which is to be held a couple of weeks later, on Tuesday the 19th of October. In episode 3, we speculated that the two-week exhibition at the Otago Art Society could have been between the 18th and the 31st of October, and it turns out that we weren't that far off. The exhibit actually opened on Wednesday the 20th of October, the day after the awards ceremony, and it closed on Sunday the 31st. Which brings us to November. The sequence gets a little messy here. Our primary source for this was the ODT article, but subsequent correspondence with Gray has corrected a couple of points from that initial reporting. What we know for sure is that artworks that were on display were available to pick up from the 1st of November. This was stated on the entry form. A handwritten note on the form that Gray has kept indicates that he dropped by to pick it up on Wednesday the 3rd of November. But it wasn't at the gallery. That same day, a letter from the telecom head office in Wellington is sent, signed by someone in the corporate communications team. The letter seeks his permission to use the painting on the cover of their Christmas card, and offers a sum of $350 for the right to reproduce the artwork. Gray responds with a yes, and asks for some cards to be sent when the painting is returned. A few days later, on Monday the 8th of November, Graham has sent a follow-up letter from Wellington. This letter advises that a courier has been arranged to pick up the painting from the Otago Art Society Gallery, and that Telecom will need to keep the painting for about two weeks while the cards are being produced. Things start to get even murkier here, so stick with me. We know that at some point during this week or so, there was some back and forth between Telecom and Gray about where the painting was, which he didn't know. A few days later, Telecom apparently called back to advise that the painting had been located in Auckland. According to the Otago Daily Times article, the painting then finds its way back to Wellington, where an unknown printing company produces the Christmas cards. If you remember from episode 4, the scanning process was often outsourced during a commercial print run, as not every printing firm even had a scanner in the 90s. Could it be that the painting was in Auckland to get scanned, before a Wellington company did the actual printing? Whatever the case, the printing happened sometime in mid to late November. A letter sent to Gray on Friday the 19th of November, from Telecom Head Office in Wellington, clarifies that, quote, The cards are now in production, and should be ready by the 26th of November. The letter also promises that a $350 cheque and some copies of the card will be couriered back along with the painting very soon. We don't know for sure when the painting arrived back at Gray's doorstep, but we do know that it did come with some copies of the Christmas cards, and that he showed these off to friends in Farno. The friend who spotted the alterations would most likely have done so in the second week of December. How do we know this? Because Graham wrote and sent a letter, by fax, to the head of telecom directories on Monday the 13th of December, alerting them to the discovery. The handwritten letter explains the nature of the defacement, along with the details of Gray's interactions with various telecom staff in the preceding months. 
Gray closes his letter with his concerns about the impact of the incident. Quote, I realize how delicate Telecom's public image is, and how recently it was further damaged by the inconstant handling of the phone Santa debacle. Similarly, the original painting is now of questionable value, as is my character. The following day, Tuesday the 14th of December, Gray has sent a letter from the top brass at Telecom Directories, acknowledging that they share his concerns, and that the customer communications manager at Telecom's head office in Wellington will be in touch to respond. A handwritten note indicates that Gray received that letter at 8am the next day, Wednesday the 15th of December. Gray told us by email that this communications manager phoned him soon after they received his letter. This probably happened on the 15th as well. He didn't record the call, but he remembers that... She rang immediately, but her style of questioning left me feeling as though they were expecting to be dealing with some sort of blackmail con. The questions were quite leading, such as, What do you want out of this, Mr. Dixon? I just said I thought they should know about it, as if one person had seen it, then there would be a chance others would. This kind of cat and mouse talk went on until suddenly I was not talking to anymore but to a man who didn't identify himself who said and i'm paraphrasing here it seems unlikely anyone will notice it as it's not that obvious so i suggest you don't say anything and we'll hope for the best he then asked me to send the painting back to them so they could fix it for me i said i didn't have it which was true at the time my real reluctance to give them the painting was more about the lack of faith i had in their care of it as had been demonstrated already but more so the way that they made me feel like a criminal with their line of questioning. On Thursday the 16th of December, Gray has sent another letter from the external communications manager at Telecom Directories, not the customer communications manager at Telecom Head Office who had called him. This letter thanked Gray for bringing the matter to their attention so promptly and offers a heartfelt apology of the incident. Quote, Please rest assured that this unfortunate incident in no way reflects badly upon you. To the contrary, we appreciate how disappointed you must feel. You are in no way responsible for what happened to your painting while it was in our care, and I am prepared to communicate this most strongly if it was ever raised with me. Perhaps naively, the letter goes on to repeat the sentiment of the unidentified second voice from Gray's earlier phone call. Quote, After viewing the Christmas card, I do believe it requires extremely close scrutiny to identify the offending matter, so the likelihood of many people becoming aware of it is minimised somewhat. As we're now well aware, this ignore it and maybe it'll go away strategy backfired. It's not clear exactly how, but less than a week later the story was swirling all over New Zealand media. As Gray told us, Maybe a couple of days later, Kim Hill announced to the world on her 9 to noon show, and I ended up in the media circus. Kim Hill is a titan of New Zealand broadcasting. As I write this, she's only recently retired, after spending nearly 40 years behind a mic. The 9 to noon show that she used to front still runs on Radio New Zealand, the government-funded but editorially independent national broadcaster. I reached out to RNZ, to see if they could verify the content of their bulletins around that time, but they didn't have any surviving records. I couldn't find anything in the Natonga archive either, and I wasn't going to bother the recently retired Kim Hill on the off chance that she remembered covering it. If the story was broken on the 9 to noon show, it would have been either on the 21st or 22nd of December 1993. 
Most likely it would have been Wednesday the 22nd, the same day that Paul Holmes closed out his 6.30pm show with the story I know all too well at this point. Other TV news shows covered the story that night too. We've seen a clip from TV3 News, as well as one from another TVNZ current affairs show called Primetime. On Wednesday the 22nd, in between the 9 to noon bulletin that morning and the home show at 6.30pm, Gray Dixon was fielding calls from media across the country. One of these calls was from Lee Harris, a writer at the Otago Daily Times newspaper, whose article graced the front page on Thursday the 23rd of December. This is the article we discussed at length in episodes 3 and 4. The New Zealand Herald article, which we looked at in episode 2, was also published that day. And this is about the point where the media coverage runs cold. We couldn't find any mention of the Telecom Sucks incident in any news media beyond the 23rd of December. Seemingly, everyone who saw the coverage of it had a chuckle, and then sat back to enjoy their Christmas and forget about it. Details of the post-Christmas sequence of events are even more sparse. Here, we only really have what Graham has told us as a primary source. According to Graham's account, he started receiving threatening and abusive phone calls about the painting, quote, immediately after the media exposure, which presumably means in the days following the 22nd of December. I can't speak for Graham, but that kind of interaction from anonymous callers, it definitely would have ruined my festive mood. And of course, as we've heard, this intimidation culminated with a visit from so-called telecom security goons, who tried to strong-arm him into handing over the painting several weeks after Christmas. Before we finish up with the timeline, there's one more thing to close the loop on. Much of the news coverage that we've seen mentions that Gray was planning to auction the painting as a charity fundraiser. Somebody made a donation to Women's Refuge, then I would gladly pass the painting on to them and uh, we might get something nice out of this event. All Gray needs now is an auctioneer to do the honours in selling the Telecom Christmas card with a difference. I spent a decent chunk of time learning how charity art auctions worked 30 years ago, and a shout out to Richard and the team at the International Art Centre in Parnell for their help with this one. Once I'd made contact with Gray, I asked him about it, and alas, it turns out that the Telecom sucks painting, it never went under the hammer. The painting was never auctioned, but the bad publicity did see Telecom increase their support to Women's Refuge and Free Phone for Santa was reinstated. I also understand a new job was created at Telecom for someone to check future paintings. Then, in a simple nine-word sentence, Gray Dixon delivered an absolutely devastating final blow, violently closing the lid on a question that I badly wanted an answer to. I have no idea where the painting is currently. So here we are, the final act. If this was a true crime story where the mystery had been solved, we'd spend some time now teasing it out for as long as possible, before detailing exactly what happened, who was involved, and what they did. But this is not that kind of true crime story. So here's what's going to happen. Before we recorded anything for this episode, Luke and I sat down one final time to review everything, top to bottom. We went through all of the theories, from the far-fetched to the more probable, and we tried to weigh up the evidence for and against each of them. Here are our conversations about these theories, in no particular order. How do you want to do this? Alright, well I mean I thought just 
we've got yeah we've got a ton of these theories and i wondered if a way to do this was potentially to look at each of these theories in turn and see what evidence is there that stacks up and what evidence is there that you know could more or less be dis- more or less be discounted i guess we've got our, our list of possibilities here let's start with the one we have the least information about let's talk about it as being an inside job okay so this would be an inside job within telecom so it's a disgruntled telecom worker had defaced the painting when the painting was in the care of telecom and and it's definitely the one we learned least about because telecom was so tight-lipped about um releasing what their internal investigation was it, it's a it's a real sort of dead zone in terms of information but effectively it would have been in telecom's care for a couple of weeks from about the 8th or the 9th of november up until the 26th at the latest so that's that's a yeah nearly three week period that some of which it was unaccounted for a lot of which it was definitely traveling we know from a letter that was sent to gray on the 19th of november that the cards were in production at that stage and that they were likely to be finished by the 26th. Here's where we start to make some kind of inference. If we're talking about a, a, a disgruntled telecom employee at some level of the delivery chain, mm-hmm. the thing that stands out to me that we haven't talked about much is that the messaging on there is telecom sucks. This seems really juvenile for someone who's genuinely angry, does it not? Yeah, I mean, it does. I mean, if you were disgruntled enough to, you know, to deface a painting, you might use stronger language, perhaps. Yeah, why would you not just say fuck telecom? The other wrinkle to this is that all of the letters that Gray received were either from Telecom Corporate, which has its head office in Wellington, or it was from Telecom Directories, which is the subsidiary, right? And they were based in Auckland. Yep. So I wonder if it sort of went from you know if the directories team who ran the art awards arranged the courier and then it got sent to directories and then got forwarded on to to telecom in wellington Um, we know from uh, multiple people um but the the telecom took possession of winning entries and we know from kath that um the actual contests and exhibitions were run by directories so i think it's very reasonable to assume that anything that telecom was going to process into future marketing collateral was going to be directories' responsibilities to deliver to whatever the next step was. I think that's a fair assumption, yeah? Mm. I'm just wondering if the, um, you know, I'm just wondering, we, t- we talk about, you know, whether it was a disgruntled telecom worker, you know, perhaps potentially was it a disgruntled telecom directories employee? Well, and that's interesting because, again, back to Kath's interview, she talks about directories being a really good employer mm. and not having to deal with a lot of the issues that Telecom had to. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it is most likely that the vandalism occurred within Telecom rather than within Telecom directories, who were separate companies. So, what is the so what's the evidence for? this theory then that it was a disgruntled telecom worker you may well have lost your job be in fear for your job lost several co-workers been shuffled around because departments were you know no longer being maintained or in the case of a lot of departments in telecom as we heard in episode two um you might be overworked 
you might now be in an understaffed department where you'll be expected to do work that isn't mm. a new job description and is in excess of your available hours. Um, yeah, potentially. Yeah, I mean, we all know those things. We we know that um, telecom's media response was certainly to shut it down, even after you know this went public on television news. This went is mainstream as domestic news gets they still were incredibly tight-lipped which you know is would 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 that be the case if they were able to identify a partner company who'd been the perpetrators the other thing that i came back to and we talked about this in the in the episode where we covered it but you know just the the very specific wording you know none of our employees was involved in it you know could it be that employee that was in, on their way out a month earlier did it and their statement, none of our employees, you know, is, is technically accurate. That's the other thing as well. I'm, I'm, I'm less compelled by that, I think, than you are, but sure. it, it is a solid point. Um, All right. Well, is there any evidence that says that goes against this being a um an inside job having the materials on hand to to do a convincing job i don't know if that's something that you know paints it as a crime of convenience i think there has to be some premeditation so who would have had access to it for long enough to premeditate yeah exactly and i mean we haven't we haven't seen the painting but we do know from I guess from the ODT article in particular that the message was painted on there, which implies that it's with paints and probably a similar kind of tone and pigment and all that kind of stuff. Okay. Well, shall we move on to talk about the gallery then? Yes, let's talk about the gallery because, like you said, if if this was defaced with paint, more likely to be paint lying around in the gallery, right? Look, I think I think the idea of someone, and I don't want to discount it immediately, but I think the idea of someone on staff at an art gallery, especially since they were mostly volunteers, wanting to deface a work of art, no matter how much they hate telecom, they know they're going after an artist's work. They, mm-hmm. more than anyone, can appreciate that there's a, an uninvolved human here who, you know, has creative collateral you're destroying. Mm. And I guess too, there's you know there's the reputational damage with telecom. I mean, telecom would have been a fairly regular, you know, exhibitor at their space. You know, they probably charged telecom to to use their space. And you know, if you damage that relationship, that's not good for future events. Part of the problem with the gallery as well is the the, the defacement is upside down, and at the gallery, directories and comes in and hangs those paintings. Mm. which means that not only was the thing defaced, but it was taken down and defaced, which just seems not only risky, but why would you not just deface it on the wall right the right way up, you know? Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely true. The ODT article did go into the did consider the gallery a fair bit. Um, they mentioned that it had been on display for two weeks and that someone at the gallery had said that the Gallery was supervised during the day while exhibitions are on, but it was often rented out at night, which implies that, you know, potentially that was a theory that someone who had rented the space for an event in an evening during that time might have done it. 
Yeah, and when we were looking at the map, it's definitely there's good access to public thoroughfares in terms of the main entrance and in terms of that rented out um, event space. So evidence for it happened at the gallery is that it was there was potentially opportunity, um, you know, because it wasn't super it wasn't supervised one hundred percent of the time. There's definitely a degree of motive in that telecom had alienated the public. And you've got to believe that anyone laid off by telecom is also a member of the public and has family who are members of the public. So that motivation also trickles down. Yeah, telecom had a like a service centre or you know a, an office in Dunedin. So there's a good chance that some of those employees might have been let go. Uh, it's a contender. Why are we both leaning away from it? It just seems weird. <laughs> you know, I can't... Can't really describe it beyond that. It just seems like a, a weird thing to do. The obvious act of rebellion here is getting the vandalism onto a card. And no one who had access to that gallery space had any knowledge that that painting was going anywhere near Helen Cobb's marketing plan. That's exactly right. The exhibition was done and dusted by the time... Yeah, by the time um, they announced that it was going to be printed and, or reproduced in any kind of way. Yeah. Well, shall we talk a little bit about um, interference from the rest of the telecommunications industry then? And I mean, and this is something that Phoebe sort of talked us through. This was one of her kind of things that she was speculating on is, was it somehow executed by Clear? Well, Clear, Clear is, you know, Clear's branding at the time was, in Phoebe's terms, a challenger brand. Mm-hmm. So being very focused on going after the monopolistic telecom in the public eye is in keeping with how they approach their marketing. Is the fact that the clear logo that the clear logo is on there, does that necessarily point to clear being involved? I would say not necessarily at all, because we still come up against the fact that telecom had possession of the painting before anyone decided it was going to get eyes on it uh, within Mm -hmm. their marketing. Mm -hmm. So what it would presume is that Clear had someone within Telecom um, who was willing to do that for them. Yeah. Which isn't impossible. It's very corporate espionage-y, but we know corporate espionage happens. Yeah. Does it happen for this kind of thing, though? (laughs) Well, here's here's the thing that makes it a little more compelling, is we don't know who leaked this to major news organizations. And we know That's it, true. We, we know Telecom would have been very, very anti this getting out and would have been wielding every, every mm. tool they had at their disposal once yeah. they knew, because Telecom knew before the news did. Yeah. And, I mean, we even have... You know, we don't have it written down anywhere, but we know from Gray's recollections that they had, what's the term? They'd been, you know, They'd been quite more... emphatic about keeping this secret. Yeah. And we yeah. do have it in writing, but they felt that it wouldn't be noticed. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, in their, apolog- in their apology letter. So if this had been a premeditated marketing attack by Clear, then they would absolutely want it to get out. They would absolutely be, you know, all about leaking it to the news. It's it is possible. I mean, if it was if it was done covertly and it didn't get found out, then it's genius. But if it got found out, then 
it's it's very risky <laughs> reputational reputationally so is this a good opportunity to discuss the other thing that came up during our interviews that we didn't really find an opportunity to cut in mm. and that's to talk about the the arts community as and for from, as a form of industry interference yeah right cuz that was something that we learned from Linda Tyler um and yeah she she sort of said that you know w- within the arts community there were mixed feelings about the telecom art awards it, it was leveling the playing field for people who didn't depend on art for their income look we we couldn't mm. fit it in episode three but we'll pull down the audio now they felt anybody could win it, a baby could win it, and it deprofessionalised art practice. If, it, if it's something that you see all the time on the cover of a, of a phone book or something, then and it's living in your, in your room, then it becomes the Mona Lisa. You know, it becomes um, much better than it might ordinarily be if it was put in amongst, you know, the cultural productions of professional artists for that particular year. What do we what do we think of this theory? I mean, is is this is this a legitimate theory that in it that a member? I think of the it was interesting community? and it was worth talking about because it's not something we had the opportunity to bring up elsewhere, and and it sure. is an interesting point. But I don't think it's a legitimate theory. No. What other theories do we have then? It kind of brings us to print, right? Yeah. So the theory that we've heard you know the pe- people that we've asked to speculate you know a few of them have brought up the fact that it could have been done at the printers and i think stephanie who we heard in um episode five she sort of said that you know she wouldn't be surprised if some people in the printing industry had an activist bent what i said to brian at scg when we talked to him and this remains true is that the fact that it was the original painting that was defaced what that means is that whoever scanned the image they would have been the last person that could have defaced it and honestly they were probably the only person who actually had people who actually handled it there's there's no reason for someone printing a card to to handle the painting it was scanned from yeah and that's not to say that you know the scanning and the printing didn't happen at the same place um it just you know I feel like this is the biggest missing piece of the puzzle is where the cards were printed. Because if we knew that, we might be able to find out, okay, did they have a scanner at the time? Was it scanned on site? Was it scanned somewhere else, potentially in Auckland? Yeah. So that's the biggest missing piece. The vandalism at that stage is is pretty easy in terms of having materials around. That's a, a big check. In terms of having the opportunity to premeditate, that's absolutely a check. Mm-hmm. It's probably with the scanner for a few days before they get around to it. Yep. Uh, in terms of be knowing how to subtly mark an object, that's another big check. Um, and in terms of being, you know, alone with with the painting and knowing that it was bound for distribution by Telegram's marketing, another big check. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a good. It's a good theory. Well, there are two big downsides, though, two very big downsides. The first is why not mark up the plate? Why mark up the painting? Mm-hmm. But I think the biggest objection is that the scanner was probably one individual, which means if this is discovered, it's so easy to point the finger. Mm. It's it's high risk. Yeah, and I mean, let's not forget, too, that Telecom would have been a huge customer for the printing house or the, you know, and or the scanning house that 
yeah, so it'd be reputational risk as well if it was discovered. Yeah, we know from Tom and from and even from Phoebe that something like that would have gone through a significant sign-off process. You know, they would have had more than one person at Telecom checking it and giving it the okay before it went into production. The only counter argument to that is that there is, you know, there's the plausible deniability. If it was discovered and Telecom came back to the printers and said, hey, what did you do to our, what did you do to this painting? Then there is plausible deniability for them to sort of sit back and go, oh, well, shit, that wasn't us. We didn't even notice that. Must have been the artist or something like that. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think the printing theory is is a strong one. Do you agree? I do. I do. I think um, of all of the places that it could have happened, it's high on my list. But it's a huge risk that someone took for next to no gain. That's the other thing, too, is that, you know, if... Yeah, I mean, if, if you were motivated to do this, what benefit would there be? The only suspect anywhere on our list that has anything to truly gain by this is the least likely suspect, is our big outlier, it's clear. Um, and then, of course, there's the most obvious one to discuss, that it was in the artwork from day one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if it's the most obvious, but it's definitely one that's been talked about. You know, it's definitely have... what Telecom felt happened. Yeah. And yeah, that Grey Dixon did it himself. And and I mean, if Grey Dixon did it himself, he's literally the only person in this entire investigation who did nothing wrong, because that's free artistic expression. And if Telecom wants to print it on their cards, that's their problem. Yeah, it would have been, yeah, the onus would have been on them to scrutinize the artwork more carefully um perhaps and you know you know uh, uh, up until we started really talking to gray i would have made the same assumption i think it's it's just a a clean tidy theory yeah i mean occam's razor it does sort of it does make sense yeah um i don't buy this theory at all though nor do i not for a second not anymore no and the reason I don't buy this theory is is because he told them about it. <laughs> you know, he he is the one who, and we have his letter that he sent on the thirteenth of December. You know, shortly after his friend noticed the hidden message in there, he's the one that advised them and laid it all out. Yes, is and that... tried tried to keep it quiet. Yeah, that's not the action of someone who's about to whistleblow it. That's that's not the action of someone who is looking to publicize this stuff. And the other thing is, he has been so consistent in his messaging. Yeah, both in the reporting of the time and in communicating with us, nothing has changed. And I think the fact that you know we have the letter from from Telecom. You know, after it had all been investigated and discussed, you know, we have the letter from, this one's from Telecom Directories, and basically, you know, basically lays it all out and says, you know, this, yeah, this, you know, thanks for bringing it to our attention. Please rest assured this in no way reflects badly on you. You know, you have the full support of the Telecom Corporation. You know, it's, it's. Yeah, and and his initial concern when he contacts them in a private letter that, we're privy to because he shared it with us Mm. is reputational damage to himself. Yeah. That's not the primary concern of someone who 
put out a work and to defame a company and made them distribute it. Yeah. The other the other big point against this is that when he produced the painting, which is one of his first, and submitted it for the art awards, he had no idea that A, it was going to become a finalist, yep. B, that it was going to become a Christmas card, and C, that it was going to get all this media attention. We know from our communications with him, he doesn't, he wasn't a fan of Telecom, whether that is something that came about after the events that he experienced or was pre-existing, I don't know. Um, but so so he has he has motive, he has the best opportunity, and he has the lowest risk. All of those things stack up to to make him a good candidate, but his conduct just doesn't fit. So after all of this, what is our definitive scenario of what we believe happened? Give me just your best guess. My best guess is that a telecom employee who was on their way out the door, maybe they'd already received their redundancy letter, working at either telecom directories or telecom head office, most likely telecom head office, had the opportunity to be in a room with the painting unsupervised for a time and decided to stick it to telecom. Yep. I think that's that's the most plausible scenario based on what we know. Anyone who receives a Christmas gift from me can easily tell whether I've wrapped it myself or if it was done by one of those people in a mall kiosk. When it comes to this mystery, I'd love to be able to wrap it up neatly with crisply folded paper, silky ribbon, and a pretty little bow on the top. But that's not possible right now. Despite our best efforts, this mystery, as of today at least, remains unsolved. We don't know with any certainty who defaced the painting, what motivated them to do it, or how they went about it. Is that unsatisfying? Sure it is, on some level. It's in our nature to seek out answers to the things we don't know, and to feel frustration when those answers aren't forthcoming. But the more I reflect on this whole strange journey, the more I feel at peace with the whole not knowing. My goal with this project was to pick up a dangling thread from my memory banks, tug at it, and then see how far it went. I've spent much of the past five years fine-tooth combing through research material and talking to fascinating people about the things that they're fascinated by. I've sent hundreds of emails, and I've learned about entire industries that I had no prior interest in. And around 12 months ago, I began the process of distilling everything swirling around in my brain into some half-hour podcast episodes. As we've heard throughout the series... The people who don't know about or don't remember the Telecom Sucks incident, they vastly outnumber the people who do. Even now, as I record these final thoughts, I can safely count the people I know who do recall it on one hand. But I do feel a sense of satisfaction in being able to share this weird memory with people literally all over the world. Sitting here now, I've decided to give myself the gift of closure this Christmas. I don't want to shut the door on the story completely, but rather keep it slightly ajar, just in case any new information comes to light. 
If you do know anything, we're still very keen to hear from you. And of course, if any huge revelations come up, we'll be back with more episodes. But until then, I'm going to remain content with not knowing. On the next episode of Prank of the Year, well, it's kind of up to you. Craig and I are pretty confident we've found out everything we can, so this is probably the end of our story. But, if by some miracle, someone who hears this knows something we don't, then maybe there'll be more episodes. If you're that someone, or know someone who might be, then flick us an email at telecomsucks1993, or one word, at gmail.com. We can even keep you anonymous if that's what you want. Finally, if you've enjoyed going on this journey with us, then consider leaving a rating and a review. It really does make a difference. Prank of the Year is written and produced by Luke Watkinson and me, Craig Major. We couldn't have made this show without the support of so many people and organisations. Folks we've interviewed, asked weird questions to, and relied on for their insights, recollections and guidance. These include... Professor Marion Gary, Na Tonga Sound and Vision, Rochelle Lockley, Keith Newman, Dr. Chris Galloway, Jan Lipsky, Warwick Thorley, Roland and Simon at Motat, Grant Forsyth, Lee Harris, Ellis at Dunedin Libraries, Mary Burgess, Rata at the Alexander Turnbull Library, Kath Blennerhassett, Professor Linda Tyler, Charlie at Tuhuro Otago Museum, the team at Hocken Library, Bruce Sargent, Christine Lockett, Ruth Cobb at Print NZ, Brian Landry, Tom, the Yellow Pages Apprentice, Spark NZ, Dr. Phoebe Fletcher, Penelope Jackson, Stephanie Gibson and the team at Te Papa Tongorewa, Chris McBride, and Rachel Sorensen. The voices you heard in the series were Alexander Jones, Maddie Mitchell, Terry Hoban, Nicola Peppercorn, Nancy Lamb, and Richard Martin. Music in the series was courtesy of Kong Fui, Deluxe Boy, Carlisle Laurent, Flute, Vlad Glushenko, and Kevin McLeod. Special thanks go to Ryan Wolf at Brevity Studios, Media Design School, our friends in Fano, including Ruth and Lillian, our research assistants, and finally, Graham Gray Dixon. Is there anything else we want to get? Yeah, look, we, we started this series talking about not a crime, but a memory. Mm-hmm. And when we first scripted episode one, you talked about maybe being drawn to this because an act of rebellion spoke to you as a 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. What does this mean to you now? For so long, there's always been extra stuff that we could look into. It's, oh, what about that? Or what about this part of it? Or can we find any information about X, Y, Z? There's always been something else to look at. And I think that we've found everything that there is to find. 
and I think that there's if there is nothing more to discover if this is all there is to know about this situation about this incident then I think I'm okay with that I mean if anyone that was involved in this is you know taken is taking this to their grave or has already taken this to their grave and we will never know then I feel like we've uncovered something that virtually nobody remembers and we've shone a light on it and I think that's cool and I think that what appealed to me as a kid was that the idea that a big company had asked somebody to make a paint, you know, to do some artwork for them, and they had basically given the fingers to that to that company in a really subtle way. Okay, I really, I really like that. It was like this this tiny little act of rebellion that didn't get immediately noticed. And I think those tiny acts of rebellion are important. And you know, thirty years later. I'm not going to get into it too much, but there's stuff happening in the world which I think needs to be called out, and there's institutions that need to be made fun of. And I think that if we can pull this example out of the the dustbin of history, where it wasn't even a footnote, you know, nobody knew about this. Everyone had forgotten about this pretty much. If we can pull this out and present this to the world as something that did happen 30 years ago, however it happened or for whatever whatever motivated it, I think that's an important story to tell. Well said. So I suppose we need to say a huge thank you to the Telecom Vandal, whoever you are, because... Yeah. You've given us a vehicle to foster the spirit of rebellion in whoever happens to come across this. Yeah. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.